Tonight we pick up in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. Let's just dive in. Verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. And so here Jeremiah writes a letter and his audience are those who were deported in the days of Jeconiah. So Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, is on the throne and he writes to those who have already been carried away. Now you may remember we saw last week under Hananiah, Uh, and others who were false prophets in Jeremiah's day, there was a rumor going around uh, that this exile for some of uh, Jerusalem's citizens would be temporary. In fact, Hananiah says boldly, within two years' time, they will be returned. This is the audience that he's writing to, those who have been deported, those who are on hold awaiting uh, the return to Jerusalem. And so we pick up in verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elasah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, okay, no postman in those days, and so there's a royal missive from King Zedekiah to king of Babylon, and along with that mail, along with those officials, Jeremiah sends a letter, and it says this, verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Okay, in other words, in summary form, he says, settle down. It's going to be a long season. It's not going to be two years' time. Don't, you know, withhold investing in real estate. Don't stop from planting a garden as if you won't be able to harvest it next year. Don't withhold marriage or the having of children or any of these things. In fact, it's going to be a couple of generations. Your children are going to marry and have children before you return, okay? And then he continues here, and then he says something very surprising. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so notice, remember where they're living, they're living in Babylon, okay? Under this pagan ruler who is cruel, who worships idolatrous gods and who has taken them captive and brought them to live in Babylon. And he says, seek the welfare of your community. He doesn't just say, huddle down and do what you can to persevere. He doesn't just say, cloister off and try and flourish. He actually says, on top of that, please Do good to your neighbors. Seek the best possible things for Babylon. In fact, he doubles down and he says, in fact, you should be praying. You should be praying to the Lord on its behalf. Okay, now uh, here they are called to pray for their captors. Okay, and he tells us here the primary reason is because in the welfare of this city, you will find welfare. Again, They're going to be here for 70 long years. And so if God brings blessing or flourishing on Babylon, it will be to the benefit of the Jews who are living there. Any disruption of the peace in Babylon will be a disruption of the peace for the Jews. And so he says, seek the welfare of the city, even pray for it, because its welfare is your welfare. Basically, God says, I've tied yours and Babylon's destiny together. I've roped them together for the next 70 years. And so settle in, do good, and desire good from God for the city. Now, Paul makes a similar statement to us in 1 Timothy. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, Paul giving instructions to this small church in Ephesus says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, don't miss a step there. I think sometimes we read this passage and it's saying, pray for all of these people because God desires for them to come to know him, to be saved. That's true, but there's a middle step there. It's pray for the peace and the welfare and the stability of the nation you live in so that the church can do its job and convey the gospel. Okay? It's not that a hostile government is somehow a limitation to the church on its mission. In fact, sometimes hostile governments have precipitated great growth in the church as they've thrown Christians in prison and their co-prisoners have become Christians and the church has exploded. However, there is a double correlation between the welfare of the world that we live in, whether it's this nation or that nation, this city or that city, and the possibility of the church doing its job. We should seek the welfare of the city. If I can use just one simple illustration of why the, this is the case, it's if we are uh, you know, engaged as a nation in a horrible war with a rising death toll, those are all people dying before they have an opportunity to hear about Christ. The welfare of the city gives us room to speak of the greater possibilities of the gospel, and that is the heart of God. Remember that it says uh, later in the New Testament that God is patient, and he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he's slow in the things he does. He leaves room. And so basically, Paul says we should pray what we know God's heart is, that there would be safety and welfare and provision and goodness in our nation so that they could know the eternal safety, eternal welfare, and eternal goodness that comes with a conveyance of the gospel. That is obviously above and beyond what we read in Jeremiah. Jeremiah's principle is a lot more simple. If you want to have a good and healthy life, you should desire that your nation you're currently living in has a good and healthy life because that is where you are. Now, this isn't the only place where I think we find a touch point between what we're reading in Jeremiah 29 and the New Testament. Um, the reason I say this is because Jeremiah's letter is written to those who are in exile. And that is one of Peter's preferred titles for the church as it expands across the Roman Empire. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean literal exiles, although it is true that sometime in the first century, the Jews were kicked out of the capital city of Rome and sent scattering. Most likely, he's writing not to scattered Jews, but Christians who have scattered. They're not exiles because they've been deported by the government at large. They're exiles because they're of the kingdom of heaven and living abroad in the nations of earth. And so if you look at 1 Peter, not only does he address them as exiles in chapter 1, verse 1, but he expands upon this metaphor in chapter 2. Here in chapter 2, notice verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, brothers and sisters, remember that the place where you currently live, the nation where you currently reside, the world as it stands is not your home. You're like a sojourner just passing through. You're like an exile. Those who were living abroad in the days of Jeremiah in Babylon. He says that's similar to our circumstance here. 
And he says that means that you need to live in a particular way among the foreigners. Okay? Now, if you read 1 Peter closely, he's writing to a significantly Gentile audience. There's a lot of Christians who are Gentiles, but here he borrows that in a metaphorical sense, and he distinguishes between the kingdom of God, the Christians, and those who are not, the Gentiles, but he says your conduct in and of this world matters. Okay. He says, see yourself as an exile. This place is not your home. And so he says that you should keep your conduct honorable, and then he describes it in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor." That is his ongoing description of what it looks like to live as exiles, where to seek the welfare of the city we live in. Okay? And so there's, there's a parallel, if you will, to our circumstances and the circumstances that Jeremiah writes to. Just like Jeremiah's audience, we are in a place that is not our home. We are in a place that Jesus even says in the Gospel of John has animosity and enmity towards us. If the world hated me, they will also hate you because you are not of this world, it says in John's gospel. But we aren't just to hunker down. We're not just to hold ourselves away from or remove ourselves from, but to live in the world, but not in the same way as the world. We're to be very present in the world and to be a force of good in the world. Like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount says, we are to be salt and light. And salt has its significance when it's rubbed into the meat that's tendency is to decay. And light has its significance when it shines in the darkness. As John Stott famously said, if a piece of meat goes bad, you don't ask, what's wrong with the meat? You ask, where's the salt? He says, if you find yourself in a dark room, you say, what happened to the light? The church is to be present and working in that midst to seek the welfare of the city. And that is what Jeremiah calls his audience to do as they are in Babylon. Continuing back in Jeremiah 29 verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them declares the Lord. The danger of these false prophets is that the Jews would never unpack in Babylon, that they would keep their suitcases close by and not settle in for the long haul because any day now God's going to bring us back. But God reiterates again that these people do not speak for him. And so Jeremiah sends a letter so that they know what's coming. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now I know that's often a verse that can be very significant to people. And I know it's also an easy punching bag for people who like to point out the significance of context. Right? Because when God says he knows this plan, it involves 70 years of exile in Babylon. But it's still clearly and obviously an encouragement. Despite the fact that it involves 70 years, despite the fact that it has that characteristic like we've been talking about, you can't go around it, you can't go under it, you have to go through it. God's working even in this disciplinary action on Israel a good thing for them. His plans are good. His plans are for a future and a hope. In fact, I think we can connect this with another often misunderstood life verse. In Romans 8, 28, we are told that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. 
But we often stop reading in Romans 8.28 and don't move on to Romans 8.29 where it explains explicitly what that good is that all things are working together towards. The good is that we would be conformed into the image of his son. Okay. And so you can't treat that good as my preferred good. It doesn't mean that everything's going to work out in the workplace. It doesn't mean if you just keep your head down, everything in the relationship will be fine on planet Earth. It doesn't mean that eventually God will answer all of your prayers for abundance and you will experience it in this world. It means that no matter what's going on in your life, God is using it to accomplish his good goal to make you more like Jesus. Like that verse in the New Testament, so also God is working out a plan for Israel, not just to give them a greater future in some sort of personal success metric, but to make them a new people. Remember, these are the people that Jeremiah last week saw in a vision that were entitled as the good figs, the ones who had finally hit bottom, the ones who had finally experienced full-on repentance and were now in a place where God could see them return to him, respond to him, and therefore he has a plan for their good. He continues here in verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. That is the plan God has for him. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. So they are going to experience restoration in the land, the restoration of their fortunes, but those are the fringe benefits of the good plan God has, which is to reunite them with the living God who loves them, who made them a nation, who has a plan for them. I will bring you back, he finishes here, to the place from which I sent you into exile. Verse 15, because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David. Okay, so notice what's happening here. Even at this distance in Babylon, people who have been deported, whether they were past tense prophets or suddenly feel the call, feel the need to speak for God, not having heard his voice. And he says, since this problem persists, since there are still those who speak, behold, he says, thus says the Lord, verse 16, concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you in exile. Because the prophets are there, because they're misleading you, let me set the record straight about what's going to happen to Zedekiah and those that remain in Jerusalem. Verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Recognize the reference there, right? That's the vision that Jeremiah had last last week of the bad figs and the good figs. The bad figs so bad that they cannot be eaten. The destiny for Jerusalem is still judgment because those who are remaining surprisingly feel like, wow, we got off easy. We must be God's favorites. Everything with us must be fine because we're still standing. They've mistaken the kindness of God for a, a sanctioning of their behavior. And so judgment is still to come. Verse 18 um, I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah. Now, those names you probably recognize both, Ahab as being a king of Samaria, of northern tribes, hundreds of years ago, and Zedekiah as being the king right now. That's not these people, okay? These apparently are prophets, false prophets, living in Babylon and conveying this message of false hope. 
And so he says, concerning these two who are prophesying a lie to you in my name, behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Notice what he says here. He says, these two men are going to be personally put to death by Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, Jeremiah nails down Nebuchadnezzar's favorite form of capital punishment, the fiery furnace, right? The same one that he subjects Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to in the book of Daniel. Now, we're not told exactly how this comes about, but it's pretty easy to say, see how Nebuchadnezzar would feel about those who would stand up in his own city and say, Nebuchadnezzar's going to be wiped off the map in less than two years. Okay. Their remarks aren't just false. In Nebuchadnezzar's minds, they're treasonous. They're annoying, and so he's going to put them to death. And because of that, everybody will see them for what they are, false prophets. Whereas Jeremiah here, his word will be validated because from a distance, in a written letter, he nails down what their fate will be. Okay. Verse 23, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel, they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. You see that last part? God pulls back the curtain on their bedroom behavior here and says, you think this is happening in the shadows, but I'm going to just nail it in a letter from a distance and draw it out into the public. Again, God says, he's the one who knows. Like he said last week, am I only a God when I'm near and not at a distance? Is Babylon too far for God to see what goes on in these people's lives? No, he knows and he brings judgment. Verse 24, to Shemimiah of Nehalem, you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem and to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, and to all the priests saying, okay, now this is getting a little bit intense because now we're talking about a letter in a letter, okay? In fact, we're going to talk about a letter in a letter uh, and the response to that letter. There's a lot going on here, but apparently this guy, Shemiah, okay, Shemiah, uh, he wrote a letter from Babylon to Jerusalem, and he writes it to Zephaniah, one of the priests, uh, as well as to Messiah, the priest, and the rest of the priests. And this is what that letter says, verse 26. The Lord has made you a priest instead of Jehoiada the priest to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies, to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who is prophesying to you? For he is sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Okay. So, notice what happens here. This prophet speaks to the residing priest, and he says, Don't you know that God raised you up for a specific purpose? Don't you know he got rid of the old priest and deported him here and replaced you with him so that you could silence the madman? So, side note, remember, this madman is the one who said that this was going to happen in Jeconiah's day and age. But notice what he's doing here. He's buttering him up. He's saying, look, buddy, you're God's chosen one. So do what you were called to do and get rid of Jeremiah, who is still causing problem by sending this letter to Babylon and telling us to settle in. But notice verse 29, Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. He makes a poor decision here. He assumes that Zephaniah will bring about this consequence on Jeremiah, but instead he goes and he visits a Jeremiah and over tea says, you've got to read this letter I received. Okay. And so he reads it to him, verse 30, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemiah of Nelam, Because Shemiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him, and has made you trust in a lie, therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemiah of Nam and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people. And he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. Now notice here, Shemiah is a contrast to what we've just been reading. 
God says, settle down. I'm going to take you through this. Your children are going to come through this. I will return them to the land and replant them. But because of his rebellious false prophesying, he won't see that future and neither will his descendants. His line will die in Babylon and they will never return to Judah. Now, in chapter 30 and the next four chapters, we have what commentators sometimes call the book of consolation. It's not that the first 29 chapters don't have any positives in it, but here in these four chapters, that's the focus and the primary view of what's going on. And so we call this the book of consolation. Chapter 30, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken you, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Okay, And so he says, Jeremiah, write down what I've told you in a book. Now we have a couple of references to the writing of Jeremiah. We'll see another one next week. Uh, and then another one as the book goes on. And in each case, we have to go, okay, what is this literally a scroll that's being written here? It may be that in this case, the scroll is what follows, the book of consolation. That basically, uh, think of it this way. If you can think of um, Christian ministry in the early American history, okay, like the 19th century and maybe even the 18th century, If you were a voice and you were speaking to the people and you wanted to extend that message, you would make a tract, right? Think of even uh, Poor Richard's Almanac, right? Uh, Or or the other ways that Ben Franklin used to influence the culture by writing things, publishing them down. A tract was the way that you convinced public opinion. It may be that that's what we have. The Book of Consolation is a tract about the promises, the good things that God has. It may also be that he's supposed to write down everything that God has said to him, meaning everything that we've encountered thus far in Jeremiah's ministry up to the time of Zedekiah's appointment as king. Um, But I would suggest in this case it makes more sense to, to see what follows as the writing itself. Okay. And basically God says good things are coming for Judah and for Israel, I will bring them back to the land. Verse four, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we've heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, the day is so great, there's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Now at first glance, This looks like it's contextually the same thing we've been reading about, the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian exile. But as we look a bit closer, it's super weird because this talks about both both Israel and Judah being defeated in a single day. In fact, here it says that what's going to happen that's being referred to here, there's no other distress like it. If you look for the greatest atrocity in human history, Jeremiah says it's right here. But remember that what happens in Babylon, in some ways it's a tremendous judgment, but most of it is chains and tramped away. It's not a horrible thing. It's not men acting like they're having a baby because the pain is so great. And then notice also it refers to here as the time of distress for Jacob or the time of Jacob's trouble. As we continue to study the prophets, especially into the minor prophets, we will see that this seems to look beyond what's happening here. In other words, there's another tragedy, another captivity in view here. There's another problem in view here. And the consolation that Jeremiah is talking about is not merely the return of Judah and Israel after Babylon, after 70 years, but something that is even in our day and age still to come. Verse 8, look, And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. That's another clue that what we're talking about here isn't Babylon. Because how is it that Babylon goes down? Another empire, the Medo-Persian empire, comes in and conquers. And it's under Persia that Israel is sent back to the land, but they're not sent to freedom. They're still very much under the thumb of Persia 
and then under the thumb of Greece, and then under the thumb of Rome until they're destroyed in 70 AD. Does that sound like uh, foreigners shall no more make a servant of him? Does that sound like I will break the bonds forever? There's something else going on here. Verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king who I will raise up for them. That's another thing. We don't see the coming promised Messiah, David, right on the cusp of Babylon. But he says there's coming a time where Jerusalem will be inhabited by the king, where Judah and Israel will be regathered together again a time of great consolation which follows a time of great distress like no other. Verse 10, Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and from your offspring from the land of captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, But of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. I'm going to bring about judgment. I'm going to bring about justice, but it will lead to your deliverance, which is similar to what we read in the last chapter, but in a greater way. What I would suggest to you is what we're reading about here. Uh, is what Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse. What we read about here is what Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and especially in 11 when he talks about the time when all Israel is saved, when there's a restoration of these things. What we're reading about here is what John tells us about in the book of Revelation when he talks about this tribulation being a seven-year period that focuses on the nation of Israel and its outcome until they recognize uh, their Messiah. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous, there's none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you, all your lovers have forgotten you, they care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. So notice this says two things, he says there's no healing to come because I'm the one who's injured you. There's no health to be had because I'm the one who has made you sick. And then verse 15, why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. Isn't that a surprising therefore? Your wound is incurable. Your sins are grievous. I am the one who've harmed you. Therefore, but understand this, if it was just an external power who had brought about this fate on Israel, then could God fix it? But since God is the one who's brought harm, he's also the one who can bring healing. Since God brought Babylon in and used them, he can also use the other nations to judge Babylon. Because he took them into this. In fact, he makes it explicit here in verse 17. For I will restore health to you and your wounds. I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. So notice here there's a double mistake. Judah misreads God's intentions. God is fine with us. Nothing is wrong. So God brings judgment using the nations, and then it's the nations who misunderstand. God must hate Judah and want to wipe them out. And he says, no, you're wrong again. I am doing this for a final outcome. I'm going to prove to them the um, incomprehensibility of God's mercy. In fact, notice this, verse 18, thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound. Okay, this is super nerdy, but I can't help but point it out. That word there for mound is the Hebrew word tell. Okay, if you go to Israel today, you can go to Tel Dan. You can go to Tel Megiddo. A tell is a hill that is uh, superimposed on the landscape because it's been built and sacked and built and sacked and built and sacked. And so now there's a heap of layers and layers of ruins. 
Tel Megiddo is by far the most interesting one because there's, I believe, if I remember right, over 20 different individual civilizations stacked like a layer cake on top of one another. And so you can start at the bottom of the hell, uh, the hill and you can walk up the excavation and you can walk through time from the days of the Canaanites before Abraham all the way through a gate that Solomon built into the days that we're reading about here in the book of Jeremiah. Okay. In fact, that's what makes the valley of Har Megiddo, where we get our word Armageddon, so significant in the book of Revelation because this is a place where war has always been waged over and over again for the same territory. In the days that John was writing, or the days of the Old Testament, that that would be the, the place of the final battle, that's like, well, where else? That is the place of battle, okay? Um, but the point is here, here he says, Jerusalem, it's going to be rebuilt right on top of itself. And you can go today and see this. You can stand in modern Jerusalem and then go into subterranean Old Jerusalem, the digs right beneath, probably the most significant uh, example of this is the old, uh, I was going to call it a castle, but the old palace of David. Okay? If you go to the city of David on the lower slope of Mount Zion, you can step and stand on top of where the palace of David was, but you go down beneath the street and there you find the excavation. But what he's saying here is that the tell is going to be rebuilt, a new city on top of the old Continuing on here, uh, the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregations established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their princes shall be one of themselves. Their rulers shall come out of their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. Now we'll see this more next week. But there's actually a double reference there and a surprising one. Okay, the first one is, is clearly to a king, right? A prince here who will rule, who's raised up from within the people, just as it's supposed to be in Deuteronomy. But when it says, I'll make him draw near and he shall approach me for who should dare to himself approach me, that's not king language. It's priest language. Remember how the tabernacle was set up with divisions of holiness because God was unapproachable in his holiness and so only the high priest would dare approach and only that with blood and only on the day of atonement. The language here is applied to the same person. There's this joining of priest and king. Now that gets outright explicit next week. But here it's just an oddity. Just one of those places where just the shadowing of the painting is placed and the details have not yet been fulfilled. But this is why when we get to Jesus, we find him not being merely king of kings and lord of lords, but also our great high priest. And the two are joined. Whereas it was from the tribe of Judah was the king and from the tribe of Levi were the priests. In Jesus, those two roles are joined together. Verse 23, behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. Okay. Now, most of the time here where it's talked about the storm of God's judgment, it's talking about what God does to Israel, to Judah. And that may be the case here. If that is the case, again, I would suggest to you it's talking about this time of Drake, Jacob's trouble. But notice he says here that it's going to work in such a way until God's full intentions are accomplished. And he says, in the latter days, you'll comprehend. Okay? Whatever God is going to do in, in view of it, preemptively, in the midst of it, it's incomprehensible. But when the dust settles and the fog clears, Israel's going to look around and go, that's what Jeremiah is saying here. Now, finally, we get to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is where this revelation of the new covenant becomes explicit and named by name. But it's important that we see there's a structure to Jeremiah 31 that's easy to miss. Okay. Okay, what I want you to notice here is that in the first part of Jeremiah 31... 
God talks about the fate of the northern tribes. And then he goes on to talk about Judah. And then he talks about them both. Now, I'll, I'll flag that as we go along. But look at the, the, the subtitle for chapter 31. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. What we read about in Jeremiah 31 is for all the clans, for all the tribes, for the whole nation of Israel. But first, he addresses the northern tribes. Okay? And that's easy to see. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mounts of, where? Samaria, right? The capital city of the northern tribes. The planters shall plant, and will eat and enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Okay? Ephraim is a common stand-in for the whole of the northern tribes. Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Even there, we get a subtle reference, don't we, to the restoration of Judah as well. But also, notice the significance in the northern tribe's history. Where did they go for worship? To the two bronze calves that Jeroboam had built to keep them. And he says, but the day is coming when all of Israel will return to worshiping in Jerusalem at the temple that God has appointed. Verse 7 for thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I'll bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest part of the earth. Among them, the blind, the lame, the pregnant women and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. Why does it mention the blind, the lame and the pregnant here? It's because those are all people who have difficulty traveling. But what God is going to do is going to make the way home so easy that it won't even be a limitation to those people. Now, I don't think that this is a reference to modern uh, transportation. Obviously, we could put from anywhere in the world a pregnant woman on an airplane and get her to Jerusalem. Okay? Um, but the idea here is more metaphorical than that. It's just like it says in, uh, in Isaiah, he says God's going to build a highway from Assyria. There will be mountains that are leveled and valleys that are brought up and the way home will be free and clear like I-5 with no traffic okay a straight way home it's a similar metaphor here verse 9 with weeping they shall come and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back I will make them walk by the brooks of water in a straight path which they shall not stumble for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn Hear the words of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He's redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Okay. There's so much language that we could pause and look at, the, uh, look at here. Shepherding language, fatherly language, redemption language, all of that has significance in Israel's history and here in their future. But I want to keep rolling. Verse 12, they shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness, gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with goodness, declares the Lord. Okay. Now, that brings us to verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Okay. Now, it may be here that we begin to focus on the southern tribes of Judah. We definitely do by the time we get to verse 23. But here's why I suggest this, okay? Uh, because Ramah is right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. In fact, it's on the way to Bethlehem. 
the reference here to Rachel nails down that geography all the way back in the book of Genesis because this is the place, interestingly enough, where Rachel dies. Okay. Weeping and naming her final son, who she dies in giving birth to, Benjamin Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. It's only Benjamin, son of my right hand, because Jacob intervenes and gives him a new name. But the picture here is different. Rama, what's also significant, it's to the north of Jerusalem. And so if you can imagine the siege going out into Babylon, into the north country, being, uh, you know, frog-stepped through Rama on the way out of and on the way to Babylon, the picture here is almost as if Rachel's ghost is standing there weeping, watching them leave. Okay. In fact, Rachel is significantly and regularly tied to mourning. So she mourns uh, and loses her life over the birth of her son. And then she mourns as Israel is trumped out. And then when we get to Matthew 2, 18, remember Herod hears from the three, excuse me, hears from the unnumbered wise men in the book of Matthew uh, that they are looking for the king whose star they've seen in the east and they've come and he's to be born in Bethlehem. And he says, send me word. And through a dream, they realize that Herod's intentions are far from good, and they don't tell Herod. And also, Joseph, Jesus' father, has a dream that leads him away to Egypt, and when Herod discovers that he's been betrayed, he kills all the children in Bethlehem, just down the road from Ramah, under the age of two, to try and get rid of this potential rival to his rule. And Matthew quotes this verse. This was to fulfill what was written by the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. Now, when Matthew says this was fulfilled, in fact, he does this a couple of times in Matthew chapter 2, four different times does he quote from the Old Testament, and every one is geographical in nature. Okay? So another one is, out of Egypt I've called my son, out of Hosea. But his idea is not that this is actually a hidden prophecy about the death of the innocents in the days of Jesus. He's wanting us to get the context here, not the weeping of Rachel, which is a good comparison, right? Because a whole bunch of mothers in Bethlehem are weeping just like Rachel did. But of the coming comfort. Because Jesus being born is the end of exile proper. Here it doesn't say that Rachel is just weeping for her children and she refuses to be comforted. Um, but he goes on in verse 16 to say, but comfort is coming nonetheless. And that's not just in Israel being returned to the land and Judah returning and resettling after Babylon, but in the coming of the Messiah. In fact, if we keep reading here, that's going to be very prevalent in the rest of chapter 31. So verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I've heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. Okay, so notice here the northern tribes respond to the discipline. You did this, we deserved it, have mercy on us. Verse 19, for after I turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him and I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Okay. Now, remember, Jeremiah is writing this. Israel's already in Assyria. But he pictures here this confidence of what's to be restored as if they, like Hansel and Gretel, should be leaving breadcrumbs along the way. Mark the way that you left, because in the same way you will return. Remember you know, the memorable markers along the road because I'm going to bring you back. 
Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. Verse 22, how long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Okay. God's going to do something new here. That word there for new is bara. It's the same one that's used in Genesis 1. 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And sometimes we misunderstand what this word bara is because we find it for the first time in Genesis 1.1 and we assume that the word innately means to make out of nothing. Because that is what God does in Genesis 1.1. He creates ex nihilo, right? Out of nothing. But the word bara is actually used pretty regularly in the Old Testament. However, there are some significant things that are always true about this word. First off, it's always associated with God doing something new. In fact, if you go and read Genesis 1 and 2 closely, it's not just Genesis 1-1 that creates bara. When he creates living beings like animals, that is bara and not asa to make as well. But it's also the word that's used of Israel in the book of Isaiah. Behold, I made you Israel. Israel was also a new thing. There were other nations, but not like Israel. God was doing something new. It's the same word that, God, that David uses in, in um, Psalm 51 when he says, create, bara in me a clean heart, O God. He doesn't just need another heart. He needs a new heart, a completely different heart. He needs God to do something new. Another thing that always is associated with this word, and this is rightly and often understood in Genesis 1, is that it's something only God can do. Only God can bara. We can asa, we can make, but only God can borrow. That's what's so profound about David's prayer. He can't make himself a new heart. That's something that only God can do. So here, when it says that he's going to do something new, he's going to create something new, it's going to be something only God can do, and it's completely new. And then cryptically it says, a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. Now, some have seen this to be uh, an expression of the virgin birth. But the truth is, if that's what we mean by a woman encircling a man, that happens all the time. That's how birth works. Like Paul says in, second, or in 1 Corinthians, that's why men are not independent of women. Yes, Eve was born out of Adam and for Adam, but every man since then has been born out of the woman. Okay. But not only that, but there's something a little bit more going on here because the word there for man is not the usual word. It's not ish. It's gabor. Okay. It's not just any given man. It's a strong and mighty warrior man. That's the word here. And the word in circles here, you shouldn't think like drawing a circle. Okay. Uh, you should think of wrapping around in protection. And so it may be here that what uh, Jeremiah is talking about is a time of peace that is so great that any given woman will be all the defense the mighty men will need, right? It's just maybe a suggestion of tremendous peace, okay? There are other suggestions out there. They all strike me as doing too much work. Occam, who was a Christian and a philosopher generations ago, um, proposed what he called Occam's razor, which is the simplest explanation should be preferred to more complex ones. Here's how I always think about it. The more hypotheticals you involve in your, in your uh, um, explanation of something, the less likely it is to be true. If aliens are real, and if they were present in Kansas in the 1960s, and if your grandmother was also in Kansas on vacation at the same time, right, you're adding so many unknown variables, it makes it very unlikely that the therefore at the end of the list is one that will be valid. Okay. I would suggest to you here that that is the simplest explanation. That doesn't make it the right explanation, but it makes it one I should be more comfortable with, and I am. Okay, verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more shall they use these words in the land of Judah. Do you see the pivot there? We've been talking about the northern tribes. Now we talk about Judah and its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitations of righteousness, O holy hill. Okay. In other words, there will be a time again where people in Jerusalem are calling down blessing on Jerusalem. 
Okay. In God's good standing. Verse 24. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmers of those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul. And every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked. And my sleep was pleasant to me. Now there's an interruption there. It's hard to fit into the context. Verse 26. At what I awoke. Who awoke? Who was the sleep pleasant to? I would suggest here that this is Jeremiah just intervening and talking about how here's where the consolation of Israel becomes consoling to him. And maybe he is receiving some of this vision in a dream and he wakes up and it's the best dream he can imagine, right? But either way here, it's just, it's just a, a refrain that's put in here to, uh, like a selah in a psalm. Stop. Meditate on the goodness of what God is going to do. Again, hear verse 25, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. Verse 27, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that I have watched, as I've watched over them, to pluck them up and break them down, to overthrow and destroy and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Again, evoking Jeremiah's ministry in chapter 1, to tear down, to pluck up, but also to build and to plant. Verse 29, in those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Okay. The idea here is instead of the people eating these super sour grapes grimacing, their children grimace instead. And it seems to have been a suggestion that basically uh, Judah feels like, why are we experiencing the full brunt of our parents' unfaithfulness? And he says, but when this is done, when it all comes together, everyone will know who is responsible for their own sin and understand judgment is meted out justly. Verse 30, but everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Now there is one other way to read this and it's only another way because we're about to open up the new covenant. And one of the things that's significant about the new covenant is whereas the old covenant with Israel is a national covenant, between God and a nation, between God and a nation that has a God-ordained government, that has a civil code that's part of the covenant that God has given. The new covenant is individual in nature. Okay. It's not that there isn't a community connected to it. When we participate in the new covenant, we become co-participants, and therefore the family of God we call the church. But the covenant itself is an individual one, one that happens at the heart level and not at the civil level. Okay. It may be that this is an introduction to that, okay. that what God is going to do here is going to be individual and significantly so, so that everyone shall die for his own sin, and each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. People as individuals and not collectively. But either way, this brings us to Jeremiah 31, 31, one of the great passages of the Old Testament. And I want you to notice that as we read here, we were talking about the northern tribes, Israel, then we were talking about the southern tribes, Judah, and now we are talking about both. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So he says, I'm going to do a new covenant, and I'm also going to do a different covenant. In some way, it's different than the one I made with your fathers. And then the difference, the only one he explains here is the one that your parents were unfaithful to, even though I was a husband, even though I was faithful to them. Okay. Verse 33, but what's new about the new covenant? This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Okay, remember the contrast here. Old covenant, law written on tablets of stone outside of them, but this written on tablets of their hearts inside of them, okay? He says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That was the ambition, the calling, the demand of the old covenant, but now it will be the reality of the new covenant. Verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
okay? So you may remember that Deuteronomy especially puts a lot of emphasis on education, indoctrinating all of Israel into the covenant that they were born into. But this one, he says, there's a way where they won't have to be taught to know the Lord. Anyone who receives the new covenant already does, has their own personal relationship and connection with the Lord. And then finally, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so the last thing the new covenant brings is forgiveness. Okay. Now, we don't have time to touch on all these things, but a little bit of homework. If you look in Ezekiel 36, about verse 20, you will see that Ezekiel writes a parallel account about these things. And there, instead of writing on your heart, it's, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In Ezekiel, the emphasis is on the giving of the Spirit and the Spirit empowering obedience. But if you read them side by side, they're clearly promising the same future coming thing, a new covenant. Another place that I'd encourage you to look is in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. When Jesus is seated, seated celebrating Passover with his disciples. And he takes over the imagery of Passover. And he comes to the cup at the end of the meal. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So here Jeremiah says a time is coming when God evokes a new covenant. And Jesus says that time is come. And it's evoked not in the cup that we're drinking of Passover. But in my blood that's about to be shed upon the cross. And then the last place that I would encourage you to look is Hebrews 10, looking at about verse 16, where the author of Hebrews explicitly deals with this passage and shows that what God has brought about in Jesus is this new covenant. But there's other places you could go. You could go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul contrasts the ministry of death and the ministry of life, the ministry of the old covenant and the ministry available in Jesus Christ. This is a significant explanation of what God is going to do in Jesus Christ. Okay. Verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs, the order of days and seasons and waves lapping on the earth but not uh, wrapping around it, the sun and the moon in their existence, if that fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Now that's actually really interesting in this context because as I suggested to you, the new covenant doesn't in its opening verses evoke the national reality of Israel but something new. In fact, we know that even though we are not from Judah or from the northern tribes of Israel, we're already enjoying this new covenant. But here he also promises that his promises to the nation of Israel and their existence and their success in God's faithfulness is as likely to end as the earth itself. Now, this is significant because there are many who look at the words of Jesus and look at the words of Jeremiah here and say God has made a new covenant and the old covenant is now null and void and God has no future plans for Israel as a nation. The church has replaced Israel in God's destiny and what he promises in the new covenant is greater than the promises in the Old Testament. And so even though some of these promises are about a nation and a land and a city like Jerusalem, God has given us something better in Christ. Sometimes they like to use this illustration. If you were living uh, 20 years before the turn of the last century and your father said to you, when you grow up and turn 16, I'm going to buy you a horse and carriage. But when you turn 16, the Model T had just come off the line and your father got you one instead, you wouldn't go, wait a minute, you said horse and carriage. Now, actually, I think that's a great illustration, but the problem is passages like this. God doesn't say here that these things are going to pass away, but in the context of the new covenant, says the opposite. Both a new covenant is coming with new promises, which apparently in Jesus Christ are available even to us, and he still has a plan for the nation. In fact, notice how it continues in verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. 
Sometimes this is the reason that's given is that because of Israel's unfaithfulness, God has cast them off and the only way they come back is like we do, like everyone else who needs mercy. Okay. But notice verse 30, uh, 37 here, he says, I'm not going to cast them off despite their evil. Like Paul says in Romans, there will come a time where all Israel is saved. And he says, and if, if his rejection meant the invitation of the Gentiles in the church, how much more glorious will be their return? And then notice verse 38, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt from the Lord. Now, if you read that and you just say, okay, a new Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, I look at the book of Revelation, we see one come out of heaven, that's what it's talking about, I'd go fine. But he doesn't stop there. He says it will be rebuilt from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill of Gareb, and then shall turn to Goa, the whole valley of dead bodies. Remember, that's uh, Gehenna, um, the valley of Hinnom. The whole valley of dead bodies and the ashes in the fields, as far as the brook Kindron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. It is the level of detail here that makes me hesitant to replace it with some sort of symbolic significance. If it just stopped and said a new Jerusalem, fine. But it gives us the dimensions. And it's not the 144 stadia of Revelation, but the classic boundaries of the city of Jerusalem as we know it. And he says it's going to be rebuilt from this corner to this wall to this gate through this valley all the way to the river Kidron. Both God is doing something new in the new covenant and he will keep his promises to his people in Israel which involve uh, a return to Jerusalem, a setting up of the city, uh, the nation of Israel continuing to exist. Now, as much as I would have liked to have done one more chapter, we're going to go ahead and close there for the night. So let's pray. Father, in one way, the fact that you have made promises that Israel as a nation would not disappear should be a great encouragement to us because they're still here and so we know you are one who keeps your promises. It seems to me, Lord, that that's what Paul is addressing in the book of Romans. How can we trust these great and precious promises in the gospel if God has forsaken his people, Israel? Can't he just forsake us as well? No, God's ways are so unsearchable. His judgments are so past us. They surpass us in such a way that God is going to do things in such a way that he might have mercy on a people who are not his people and have mercy on his own people. You're going to do something greater than we imagine, something that, as Jeremiah says here, we will only understand when it's finished. But we thank you, Lord, that you didn't just give this new covenant to Judah and to Israel, but to all who would come. And because of that, no one need instruct us or teach us saying, know the Lord, because we can know you personally. Because we can be your child. And you haven't just given us an outward law to conform us to, but an inward transformation that transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ, Lord. It's not just a new covenant, it's a better covenant. And we thank you for it. And we know that it was bought at tremendous cost in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, have a good night.